Judges chapter 11. This is probably maybe the second most popular character in the book of Judges, maybe second to Samson, but he is definitely, Jethrup is definitely the most infamous character. In fact, when I was planning the preaching series with some of the different teachers, uh, one of the counselors that will remain nameless said, I will be gone that week, so please do not set me up to preach this chapter. He actually is not here, so, you know, he made a vow that actually, you know, he, he, he kept his word. <laughs> Before we start, I'd like to open our time in prayer. Lord, we're thankful again uh, for your word and its truthfulness in terms of revealing how broken we really are, how sinful we can be if we deviate from your word. Lord, there, uh, it is really easy for us to slowly drift away, especially um, where we're not focused or anchored in your word. And we've just been reminded of recent events where famous Christians who seem so faithful for a while, uh, who's used uh, so mightily for a season and time, can, can just turn from you so quickly. Lord, may, that, may this be a warning for us as well, that um, compromise begins very small in our life, and if we allow it to grow and fester, inevitably we will deny you, Lord. Lord, be with us this evening. Give us attentiveness. Allow us to uh, know your word and apply it faithfully in our life. Pray these things in your son's name. Amen. A time without God is a time where tragedy, tragedy will come. And oftentimes this, this drift comes slowly, and even in our modern time, there's been this movement to try to get people away from Christianity, thinking that if, if we get Christianity out of the schools, out of the government, out of just public life, if we just get rid of all of the Christians, then the world will become a better place. I was listening to um, this little Q&A, and uh, one of the pastors there was from Scotland, and he said that America is about maybe four or five years behind uh, Europe, and he was saying how there's the same movement here where they try to get rid of Christianity. They think that it, like somehow before Christianity came into play that the world was a peaceful place, and he reminded the listeners that before the missionaries went to Scotland and evangelized and built churches there, that the people there were savages. They were barbaric. You know, they were just killing each other, just massive wars everywhere. But when Christianity came into the nation, that it gave order. It gave them a sense of, of understanding what, that people are made in the image of God. And it, it, it set their heart right with the Lord. And the entire nation was reformed because of it. And, in, and that's true. If you even <laughs> look at countries now that, that is primarily dominated by any other religion or atheism, those places never thrive. They never do well for a very extensive amount of time. This is the reality that if you live in a world without God, people will go and just revert into sin. Without the Lord, and if the Lord gives them over to their sin, the place is a very difficult place to live. The modern nation assumes that the world will become better without God, and that's a really ignorant and really foolish statement. To be in a world without God, God or his word, will just plunder society into disaster. Christians, we must understand 
that, that it's not just the outside world that we need to worry about. We need to worry about our own lives. We need to worry about how we are in the context of the church. Because if we're not faithful in our individual walks, if each and every single one of us individually compromise, then the church will become useless to the Lord. And in a in larger context, when the church becomes useless, then it's not effective in terms of its impact in the world, and the society, and eventually the society as a whole will crumble. Israel, at this point, is living in a life without any reliance on the Lord, and is evident by the fact that they never go to him except during times of affliction. Their negligence of God and his word is what brought them into a time of turmoil. Remember, at the end of the last chapter, they were talking amongst themselves to figure out who they would have as their leader and king to rule over them. Chapter 10, verse 17 and, six, 17, uh, and 18. Then the sons of Ammon were summoned, and they camped in Gilead. And the sons of Israel gathered together and camped in Mitzvah. The people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the sons of Ammon? He will become head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Even after God has gave them over and delivered them out of their pain, they fail to go to God again. This is typical Israel and is even typical in our own lives. If you think about every major decision in your life, if you think about the, even some of the daily activities that you do, how many of these decisions were soaked in prayer? If not soaked, how many were or at least dabbled in prayer or sprinkled? Was there any consideration in presenting your request before the Lord to seek out what God wants from his word and through prayer? And this chapter shows us what happens when we rely on our own strength and our wisdom and how, it, and how that type of lifestyle, after a certain amount of time, will begin to ruin us. We will go through this, these five scenes. This chapter is 40 verses long. And uh, I'm going to teach it a little bit differently than what I used to. Usually I kind of give the propositional points at the beginning. And then, uh, and, and, but this time I'm going to do a little different. I'm going to actually just talk through the text. We're just going to study through it. And at the end of it, I'll give some application points. So I'm not going to give the proposition right away. But, I, but I'm just going to give like a general overview of what, we're going to, uh, what this chapter is about. Because there are a lot of things in here and then we don't have the time to go over each and every single thing. But it, but, it's just, but it is something to, for us to think about. If you're wondering what happens if you try to live life without prayer or without God, uh, these five scenes should warn us on what, what the world would be like. This is, these five scenes here is just going to show us what the world would be like without God. So this first scene here, we'll call it the, the tragic origins, verse 1 to 3. Now Jephthah the Gilead was a valiant warrior, but he was the son of a harlot. And Gilead was the father of Jephthah, Gilead's wife, bore him sons. And when his wife's son grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellow gathered themselves about Jephthah. This chapter begins almost like a little origin story. These three verses kind of sum up the background of Jephthah. One of the first descriptions about him is that he's a valiant warrior. He must somehow look the parts. He was probably physically intimidating. Uh, he is probably someone that they knew that was able to fight. But even though they had, uh, he had all these credentials, he, there was this one mark that was against him. 
and is that he was from, he was a son of a harlot. Now, this sounds familiar because another judge in the past was like this, but this word harlot is different. It's more like the word in the Hebrew, it's not really a harlot, but more like someone that, that you know, harlot is someone that you would pay someone to commit sexual acts with. This person, this person that, that Jethro's mom essentially is more like someone that just had an affair. Someone that like, like did not have some, did not require money in order for them to have sex with one another. So Jethro's father was a person that just had an extramarital relationship and through that he was born. You'll notice that uh, again, this, uh, they did not go to God to help ask to raise them a judge, but they chose this person because he was physically, he looked the part. And yet they drove him out because of his background. But even though he was a, uh, a, a mighty warrior at the time, they did not perceive his usefulness in the tribe. So they casted him out. The word, uh, the, he's known as a valiant warrior, meaning he, can, he has some sort of value, but he, uh, the, he was the best that Israel had to offer. This was, this was, again, a time where everyone was doing was right in his own eyes, and he was the best they had to offer. Again, this is not, a, the, when we go through this book of Judges, this is not a go and do likewise type of thing. This is just a window into the world that they lived in back then. They acted like the world, and they have adopted the world's lifestyle and worldviews, and, and inevitably, it ruined the society as a whole. Liberty from God's word is always voluntary slavery to sin. If you look at verse 2, Jephthah being a son of a woman from outside the confines of marriage is now being treated harshly by his half-brothers. Jephthah was casted out, and the reason was obvious. It was because they, the, the other brothers realized, like, hey, this person is not, uh, how, do, how can we get most of the cut? How do we get more of the inheritance? So they thought, oh, let's get rid of Jephthah. He, he's not really our brother. So they, they decided to cut him off. And although it was normal for children outside of, um, that's married outside of the confines of marriage to be seen as uh, someone have no inheritance or social standing, it is implied in this episode in language that Gilead probably adopted Jephthah, which gives him some right to the, to the inheritance after his passing. Because if he did not have any of them, and if he, if he, if he didn't have any, um, if he was not adopted, they he would have actually been able to inherit it. But because he is adopted, they see him as a threat. So after his death, they probably read the will and they chose to ignore him in this will. And Jethro's life changed drastically in an instant due to his greed, due to the greed of his brothers. And this resulted in him moving to a place called Tob. And Tob in the Hebrew means good. So he literally moved to the good land or the land of good. He went to a place that was called good, even though his current situation was anything but good. And you notice that Jephthah went out with a bunch of worthless fellows. Those were worthless, basically immoral people. These were like almost like uh, they were they were the guys that are just really they're just bloodthirsty men, bloodthirsty individuals. They operate without any moral compass other than doing what they want. It is in this location. That he proves his, his military proudness. And one commentator describes him as, in, as him and his moral men as a band of guerrilla fighters or terrorists. And his people were, were tough and they were not to be messed with. Again, this should be no surprise to anyone. Although this story seems sad, this is what happens when there's a society that lives in time with the, when they do what's right in their own eyes. 
you'll find that, all, that people will do all that they can to serve their own self-interest. Families will turn on each other. Families will, individuals will work with other worthless people to just terrorize other people. And one may feel sorry for him, for this mistreatment by his brothers. But again, this is no surprise. Israel has gone so knee-deep into their sin that they, are, that they are and have already in the past destroyed and have backstabbed family members. So they get what they want. This introduction to Jethro actually offers some, a grim reality that there is no promise for him. And although his origin seems very tragic, he'll be remembered by the end of the chapter by something far worse. Let's get to the second scene. The second scene, we'll call it the first vow. The first vow. Verse 4. It came about after a while that the son of Ammon fought against Israel. When the sons of Ammon fought against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to him, come and be our chief that we may fight against the sons of Ammon. Then Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me and drive me from my father's house? So why have you come to me now when you are in trouble? The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, For this reason we have now returned to you, that you may go with us and fight with the sons of Ammon and become head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you take me back to fight against the sons of Ammon and the Lord gives them to me, will I become your head? The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord is witness between us. Surely we'll do as you have said. Then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and chief over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. This section now follows chronologically after the end of the last chapter. The Israelites were at war with the Ammonites, and and the elders... Uh, and, the, and the elder there went to find Jephthah. They were probably losing. They were probably under oppression again. And they said, we need to find that guy, that guy that we cast out. He had all these worthless guys. He, they, at some point, they, he was just notorious for his, for his ability to just brutalize and, and hurt people. So they went to find this guy. And it's pretty obvious what's going on. They only went to him because of his reputation as a warrior. And they only want him simply to deliver him from their problems. They didn't want to restore their relationship or even reconcile any hurt feelings. They just wanted someone to help them win, to get them out of this mess as soon as possible. Jethub, who has been burned before, wanted to know if they are, well, what they're saying is true. They, uh, they told, they told Jethub if, if, if he won, then they'll make him king over them. And notice that the qualification for his leadership is all external. They are always, ba- uh, Israel as a whole has always based their desire for leadership on external things. It was pleasing to their eyes. And Jethub looked the part of leadership, and that was his only qualification. That's why in verse 7, Jethub re- reminded them of how they mistreated them before, because they knew that about him. And he, he's asking, are you sure that you want me to be your lead? They rejected him because his brothers wanted their inheritance, but now they want him back so they can preserve their livelihood. Jethro's response actually reveals that, that these people were there. These elders were there during the time of his exile. And in this language here, it's this, almost like this language of false repentance. Right? They, they, they were there when they were cast out and they did not say anything. Now when they need help, they went out to find him. They attempted to negotiate with him. They offered him something more than just inheritance. They, they offered him the throne. This is exactly the same thing as Abimelech earlier, a few chapters ago. 
Israel here made a foolish vow. They made a vow without asking God to rule or to find a qualified leader. Again, this is vintage Israel. In fact, this short portion parallels what happened earlier in chapter 10. Uh, there's a slide here that I want to show that you can see this, this how they're making the same mistakes. So you'll notice the first is this, this rejection in chapter 10, verse 6. They, they, uh, the Israelites rejected God, and then in chapter 11, verse 1 to 3, they rejected Jephthah. And again, this parallels between the way Israel treated God and the Israel treats Jephthah. And then chapter 10, verse 7 and 9, uh, the anger of the Lord burned against them. He sold them into uh, the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, and they were afflicted because of them. In chapter 11, verse 4, you'll see it came about after a while that the sons of Ammon fought against Israel. And then they were, like, losing. There was some sort of distress, something that caused them to really to realize, like, okay, maybe you need to go and find someone to help them. In chapter 10, verse 10, uh, the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you, for indeed you have forsaken we have forsaken our, <coughs> our God and served the Baals. And in chapter 11, verse 5 and 6, they acknowledge what they've done to, um, to Jephthah, and they acknowledge all that they've done wrong. Chapter uh, 10, 11, 14, we see that God rejects them. He, they, he, they come to him, they, and they, they say, hey, can you help us, God? And God rejects them because he knows what's going on, what their true desires are, and he says no to them. And in, 11, in chapter 11, verse 17, Jephthah does the same thing. He rejects their offer initially. He said, "Do you really? Were you not the one that 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 kicked me out? Didn't you not? Did you not hate me and drive me from my father's house?" And then verse, and then chapter ten, verse fifteen, sixteen through verses bargaining. Remember in uh, chapter ten, verse fifteen, the Israelites said to the Lord, "We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day." So they put away their foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. In chapter eleven, verse eight. They, uh, the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, For this reason we have now returned to you, that you may go with us and fight with the sons of Ammon and become head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So they began bargaining with him. And at the end, chapter 10, verse 16, they, there was acquiescence. They accepted what, was gonna, what, what, uh, what the Lord was going to give them. And at the end of chapter 11, uh, verse 9 and 11 of chapter 11, the same thing. They either say, okay, whatever happens... Uh, we'll give you what you want. If you want to be our king, then so be it. Again, this is a pattern of Israel. They aren't really repentant. They haven't really learned anything. This is a sign of their desperation, and they will try anything to get their own comfort. Chapter 10 is a corporate way of responding to God, whereas in this chapter is the same thing, but only in an individual level. Chapter 10, the entire nation is like this. Chapter 11, they do it for individual people. I want you to think about this list, and do you see your life in this way? Is this how you approach God in your daily walk? Do you reject God initially? You know, so I've, I've, I've met so many young people that said they, they don't need God. Yeah, it's, on my career, it's all about what I can do, what I need to accomplish. I don't need to go to church. I don't need to pray. It's all about my own abilities. Then over time, their, their work turns on them. Their work begins to become really stressful. Then they start realizing, they start coming back to church and say, hey, can you pray for my job? It's really stressful. They start talking about how hard it is. Then they acknowledge what's, what they've done is wrong. And then they ask God. They even begin to bargain with God. Oh, God, if you make my job easier, then I will listen to you. I will submit to you. And oftentimes what happens when God gives them over, gives them they, what they want, they eventually turn back to their sin again. 
or you even think about relationships. You say, oh, I'm going to pursue this relationship without submitting to the word of God, and if the relationship wrecks your life, then you come back to church, or you find a Christian, yet you tell them of the mess you've made, and how God, if God was real, and I will I'll submit to him if he just gets me out of this mess. And whether and however God responds, generally people, if they try bargain with God, will never have a true love for God. Is this your life? Are you like Israel when you think of God? Is this how your daily life looks like? Jethub is a leader that reflected their own sinfulness. And what is interesting is that Jethub is the only leader of Israel that, the only leader or judge of Israel because he was invited by the Israelites. The Holy Spirit's role will be acknowledged later on in this chapter, but that only was after he was commissioned to lead the people into battle. The Israelites in verse 10 made a bargain with God, a bargain that if God has indeed allowed Jotham to win, that he will make him their leader. He will make him their king. Again, throughout the Old Testament, it has always been said that God was supposed to be their king. And time and time again, they forget that truth, and it causes them to go into pain and misery. What is interesting and strange that Jephthah became their leader at the end of this verse before he accomplished what he wanted, or before he even accomplished what he promised. Right? You'll notice that they said they made him chief, and they made him head and chief over them. So even before he was able to deliver, they already made him king. This already showed them what's in their heart. They're not even thinking objectively anymore. They just figured, okay, we'll just do whatever just so we can get out of this mess. Which leads to our next scene, the negotiation, uh, verse 12 to 28. Now, Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the sons of Ammon, saying, What is between you and me that you have come to me to fight against my land? This king of son, the king of the sons of Ammon said to the messengers of Jephthah, because Israel took away my land when they camped up from Egypt, from the Arnon as far as the Jabbok and the Jordan. Therefore, return them peaceably now. Ammon said that the Israelites took their land. He, back then in war, they would usually like send like one kind of like a, like a ambassador to kind of talk the terms like, why are you doing this? And the people in Ammon said like, the reason why we're doing this is because you took the land from us. And where I'm going to, and, and, and Jethub actually gives his arguments. He gives three types of argument. He gives a factual argument, a theological argument, and a historical argument. Now I'm going to read uh, the first one, which is the factual argument from verse 15 to, 20, 15 to 22. Uh, actually, I'll go back uh, from 14. But Jethub sent messengers again to the king of, of the sons of Ammon, and they said to him, Thus says Jethub, Israel did not take the land away uh, did not take away the land of Moab, nor the land of, son, of the sons of Ammon. For when they came up from Egypt, and Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh, then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen, and they also went to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. Then they went through the wilderness and around the land of Edom and the land of Moab and, the came, and came to the east side of the land of Moab. And they camped beyond Arnon, but they did not enter the territory of Moab. For the Arnon was uh, the border of Moab. 
And Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of Amorites, the king of Heshbon. And Israel said to them, please let us pass through your land to our place. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sihon gathered all his people and camped in Jahaz and fought with Israel. The Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all his people into the, into the hand of Israel, and they, and they defeated them. So Israel possessed all the land of Amorites, the inhabitants of that country. So they possessed all the territory of Amorites from Arnon as far as Jabbok <clears throat> and from the wilderness as far as the Jordan. So Jethro's first argument is actually stating that what they said was not true. The, the, the king here said that like, the reason why we're against you is because you took our land from us. And that wasn't the case. He's trying to say that this is, not, this is actually what really happened. What actually happened was Israel went from place to place, and they were rejected by everyone. But it wasn't until they were attacked that they fought back. And when they fought back, they won, and that's how they got the land. It is true that God commanded the Israelites to take out the other nations, but they always failed to do so. Because of their own cowardice and unfaithfulness, uh, they never got the land that God has promised them. So Jethub was correcting them by speaking of Israel's own unfaithfulness. But the Ammonites eventually did attack the Israelites, and this is how they got the land, which gets to their second point. This is the theological arguments. Uh, verse 23. It says, Now the Lord, uh, the God of Israel, drove out the Ammonites, Amorites from before his people, Israel. Are you then to possess it? Do you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess? So whatever the Lord our God has driven out before us, we will possess it. This is a theological argument. Even if, that, even if the, those events happened that way, their own logic is that, that their God won. The, the God of Israel won, so therefore it, it's okay. Remember, this is a time where people thought like every nation, every country had their own little gods. And whoever won, it's not just a nation, but they show that their God was a true God. And Israel won. This is something that everyone understood. And the God of Israel was, was victorious. So that's why they owned the land. Israel had victories throughout history that showed them that Yahweh is the one true God. But because of their idolatry, God gave them up over to other nations. And Jephthah is saying that using your own logic, your worldly logic, how uh, whoever God wins, that shows, uh, that's, uh, that's the one who possessed the land. And if that, makes per- that, that makes perfect sense to Israel to get the land because they won the land because their God is a real God. And since Jephthah is telling them that if they have a problem with losing, losing and they need to take it up with their God or the God of Israel since Yahweh was the one who beat them. Then in the end, there's this uh, historical argument, verse 25 to verse 28. Now, <clears throat> are, now, are you any better than Balak, the son of Zephor, king of Moab? Did he ever strive with Israel or did he ever fight against them? Well, Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages and in Orari and its villages and all the cities that were on the banks of Arnon, 300 years. Why did you not recover them within that time? I therefore have not sinned against you, but you are doing me wrong by making war against me. May the Lord, the judge, judge today between the sons of Israel and the sons of Ammon. But the king of the, the, but the, king of the sons of Ammon dis- disregarded the message which Jethro sent him. So again, this is, uh, he's using this, Jethro's using this historical argument 300 years ago. Balak wanted to fight against Israel, but was unable to win because the prophet Balaam was uh, causing him to unable to curse 
the Israelites. This is found in Numbers 22. And this meant that although Balak wanted to fight the Israelites, even he realized that he couldn't win because his prophet wasn't able to curse Israel. Every time he spoke, it was always giving a blessing to Israel. Therefore, he chose to let the Israelites go. And Jethro was arguing with history. If those people in the past were not willing to take us on, what chances does these people have now? These other nations didn't bring it up for the last 300 years. Why are they bringing up this issue now? And Jethro stated that the land belonged to God, and it, which, in other words, it belonged to Israel. And it was given to the Israel by God to inhabit. And, Anma, and Ammon did not listen and wanted to just rage war against them. Now, Jethro knew facts. He knew history. He knew theology. This was the best person that Israel had to offer. The only problem with this is that, that knowing these things does not mean that you're a person that submits to God's commandments. If you were to base someone's maturity on, or godliness on how much they knew about the Bible at this time, then Jethro would be the champion. He would be the one that, you know, if, you got, if we were doing like Awana, he would be the one to have all the badges. You know, if he were doing the little Bible drills, he knew every little one of them. He would win everything. But again, this is a low bar because at the time of the judges, there were a lot of people who chose to ignore the word of God. He just happened to know it. Even non-believers can know things about God without actually worshiping the God of the Bible. It's a sort of selective memory, right? They, they can only remember things that will help them and ignore the things that recall the mind, like commands of Scripture. Or you'll see people that say, oh, doesn't the Bible say one thing, but they forget like the part where they say, repent. Or we see that even in our society. People say, oh, God is love. And they never talk about how God talks about sin, God talks about hell, and all of these other things. They're just selective about what they want to listen and remember about the Lord. And this is what Jephthah is going through. He is going to demonstrate in his life how even though he knew all these things about God, that doesn't mean that he's going to submit to the word of God. Which gets to the fourth scene, which is the most infamous scene, the tragic vow, verse 29 to 33. Now the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah so that he passed through Gilead and Manasseh. Then he passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he went on to the sons of Ammon. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give the sons of Ammon into my hand, then it shall be that whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the sons of Ammon, it shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Since the Amorites decided to <laughs> reject Jephthah, Jephthah, uh, with his band of wicked men, decided to cross over and attack. And the Lord came upon him to do this, but before he attacked, he made this vow. This is the infamous Jephthah's vow. Is that it's, if God was willing to give him victory, he'll sacrifice the first thing that comes out of his, the door of his house when he has victory, when he goes home. And of course, this is foolishness. The implication is that in his thought process was that he hoped maybe one of his slaves would come out. Or maybe one of his friends will come out. Or even perhaps even an animal will come out. He was willing to wager whatever in his life for this victory. And it could be that, it, it could be that the reason why Jethro did this was because he had done something like this in the past. I would argue that this is not the first time that Jethro has done something like this. Part of the reason why he's so brutal is he's known for this is probably offered it other people to God. He probably offered, and he probably, and was, 
possible that he offered to other gods as well. He may have won multiple victories in the past by offering other people to God. This is just his pattern. It's just repeating itself. Again, this is actually how the rest of the world was acting. They had to offer a life to show their pagan gods how serious they are about, about what they wanted. And Jethro using the world's practices to try to justify and do whatever seemingly right, mainly saving God's people. But what he did was going against God's word. Throughout the Levitical law, there has been commands after commandments how you should not offer anyone for burnt sacrifice. This is a sin that got all the other nations removed by God, offering their own children to get what they want in life. Yet at this time now, they are the people that chose to do exactly like what the other nations would do to bargain with their God. Even though they had the right God, right? Jephthah was worshiping the one true God, but his practice was anything but faithful to the Lord. Israel embraced exactly the same sin that the pagan nations were committing. This is how Israel negotiated as a whole in this, in this chapter. They said they'll do whatever uh, and they'll give up whatever as long as God will save them. This is a cultural corruption, and we see that in the life of Jephthah. This is why I said earlier that Israel, that when they are not praying or depending on Israel, they will always find leaders that look exactly like them. This is the type of thinking that is from the world, and the Israelites brought, uh, bought into it. As I mentioned, in the, in the, I don't know which sermon it was, but the biggest threat in the church is always from people within the church. It's when people within the church decide to stop looking to God and stop looking to God's word and submitting to God's word and begin to start adapting to the, the, the world around them. That is where the biggest threat comes from. This is why the church loses effective in the culture because the church begins to look exactly like the world. Israel's biggest threat and the church's biggest threat are people who take the ideas from the world and blend it into the church. Jephthah makes his vow and then gets victory and then he goes home. Verse 34. Uh, actually, we're going to the last scene, the fulfillment of foolishness. The last scene we'll call it the fulfillment of foolishness. Then Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah. Behold, his daughter was coming out to meet him with tambourines and with dancing. Now she was, now she was his one and only daughter, one and only child. Besides her, he had no son or daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you are among those who trouble me. For I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot take it back. So she said to him, My father, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me as you have said, since the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the sons of Ammon. She said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Let me alone two months that I may go to the mountains and weep because of my virginity and I and my companions. Then he said, go. So he sent her away for two months. And she left with her companions and wept on the mountains before, because of her virginity. At the end of two months, she returned to her father who did to her exactly to the vow which he had made. And she had no relationship, relations with a man. Thus it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went yearly to commemorate the daughters of Jephthah, the Gilead, four days in the year. Jephthah returns home. He sees his daughter. 
greets and she greets him. And he breaks, and this breaks his heart. He, wa- he wagered his daughter unknowingly, and he is now going to lose her. He's, going, he's broken over the reality that now he has to fulfill his vow. <clears throat> he realizes that by offering up his only child that he's going to end his own bloodline. This is a lose-lose situation for him. And Jephthah, if you notice in verse 35, even seems to put the blame on her. He said, you have bought and brought me very low. And isn't this typical of those who fall into stupid sin? Instead of, instead of taking responsibility of their own sin, they tend to blame shift and blame other people. We see this in the garden, right? When Eve was tempted, he blamed, she blamed the serpent. And then when Adam fell, he blamed, essentially he blamed God for giving, her, giving him Eve. It is a culture, it is in the culture or in the surrounding, it is it's normal for people in the world to blame shift other people, especially when they fall into some sort of sin. Again, this is a time where people did what was right in their own eyes. So everything that they do is always right. And the moment that they're found doing something wrong, they begin to blame shift and blame everyone else except themselves. They don't blame other people for their own stupid decisions. They don't blame other, they, they, they blame people for their stupid decisions. They blame others for what they've done. This is response that is from all the way back again from the garden and it and is still in the church today. We must be willing to humbly admit our own faults in the matter and even confess it before the Lord. <coughs> Jethro said that he has to give her up as a sacrifice. Again, this shows how broken the world has become. Verse 37 and 30, he, he, she has to go and mourn, and she was mourning because she has to die, and she's, she's actually, she's actually going to die. Um, and they actually made a memorial for her to celebrate. Again, this is a dark day in the time of Israel. Jethro offers her as a sacrifice. The scripture makes no excuse for getting out of a vow, only that a person should not make a vow to begin with. Jethro's story actually portrays him to live a, a life of a faithful Amorite than a faithful Israelite. I think some people think of this like, why didn't he just stop the vow? Like, uh, yeah, he should have. He should, he, even though he made the stupid vow, he should not have kept, he shouldn't have even made the stupid vow to begin with. But if he made a stupid vow, he should have just ended it. He should just stop the vow. The biggest issue here wasn't that he had to sacrifice his daughter. It was that he made the stupid vow to begin with. This is not something that Scripture takes lightly. Scripture tells us not to make vows. There are vows in Scripture, and we'll talk more that, about that when we get to Samson, but there are from what I've studied, there's mainly a few vows in Scripture that I think are biblical. Like one, the Nazarite vow, which we'll see with Samson. And later we'll, in our life, we know marriage vows, right? And then in Jeremiah, there's another vow about like not taking alcohol. These are vows that God has commanded, God has ordained. These are good vows to take. But the vows that Jethro made are, is not anything from Scripture. And oftentimes, this is why in Scripture, in Matthew, when Jesus tells us not to make vows... These vows are oftentimes things that we create and we presume on the Lord. We think that if we do this vow, then God will somehow do our will. This is why vows are so dangerous and God tells us not to make these vows. What is the difference between the vow here and the vows that are in, in Scripture like marriage and Nazarite vow? Because these vows, like the Nazarite and the marriage vows, these are things that are aligned with the will of God. People think that if they are Christians that they can make these stupid vows that are not according to God's word. No, don't do that. Don't make vows that go against scripture. 
And this is what Jethro did. He, if he, he knew all of this history, he knew all of this theology, but he forgot aspects of God's word. If he knew about what God said about making vows, he would not have made it. Human sacrifice is obviously something that offended the Lord, but yet he chose to continue to do it. He should not have killed his daughter, but he did it. Again, this shows how corrupted this world has become, that no one really here knows the word of God. And even if they did know the word of God, they chose not to submit it. The question is, how can a person that claimed to be a follower of God do something so stupid? And there are debates out there that think that he, he either knew uh, God's anger towards human sacrifice and others think that he may not have known. But to me, the point isn't so much about ignorance or or willful disobedience, but just the fact that he chose sin. He chose to do sin. How can that be? Well, again, before we look at, look to him and judge this judge, understand that you and I are capable of doing something like this as well. Every time we tell a lie, this is something that God sees just as bad as human sacrifice. Every time we look at someone with lust, this is just as bad as how God views someone who's willing to sacrifice another. All sin is evil. No matter how big or small the sin is, it weighs heavy and it offends our God greatly. Remember that this entire chapter, Yahweh was only referenced, but he was never actually, he had never actually spoke. They, he didn't actually tell them or give them any commands. He didn't speak because Israel would not listen. They referred to Yahweh and even did things in his name, but they never went to God. They never sought out God. They didn't obey God. God, in a sense, was totally absent in this entire section. How did they get to this mess? How did they get to this point? And as I said, it's because they stopped looking to God through, either through his word or in prayer and decided to do what's right in their own eyes. So how do we prevent ourselves from getting to this point in our lives? What are the lessons that we can learn from this chapter? What are the signs that we are either heading towards this life or already in this life? Well, here's seven lessons. We might not get, be able to get through all of them, but there are seven, one, seven lessons I've learned just by studying through this. One, objectivity is distorted by sin. Objectivity is distorted by sin. Remember, Israel loved their idols. It would seem that they would love, and their, their greatest idol, I think, is their own comforts. Like, why did they go to the Baal worshippers? Why did they go to all these other gods? It's because they desired their own comfort. They saw that as their god, and they would do whatever it takes to have their comfort. In chapter 10 and 11, they were given over to their sin for their punishment, and the only reason why they would go to God is to help them from feeling pain no more. What they desired most was not actually what God wanted. God wanted a devoted heart for him and to him, but their sin caused them to, to want something else, and that, often, and that oftentimes led to their own suffering. So it is with us. Whatever idols that we have in our life, it will taint your view of God's word. If you hold on to idols tightly, you will not look to God's word objectively. You'll always make excuses on why you don't want to submit to God's word. You'll, make, you'll rationalize why this type of lifestyle is okay. You'll rationalize why how this type of spending is okay. You'll rationalize how you use this time is okay. How you spend alone time with this other person is okay. You'll always make excuses for sin. Sin will corrupt your mind. It will make you not think objectively. Sin will cause you to think that what you want is actually what is pleasing to the Lord. 
sin distorts truth. Another lesson, well, how did they get to this point? There was a lack of prayer. If you, the Israelites, you notice they didn't really pray to the Lord. They didn't go to the Lord. They didn't go to his word. They didn't even, find out, even attempt to look for a prophet. If you choose to live life without going to God regularly enough, you'll find that there will be increased foolishness in your life. You'll start making dumber and dumber decisions. The lack of communion in the life of Israel caused them to drift from God, and so it is with you if you're not dependent on the Lord in prayer. I was thinking about just my own life and how, how and again, every time when preachers preach, we're always thinking about our own life first. So I'm speaking really like transparently. I'm thinking, oh, how often do I pray? Like if I remove times of like prayer before a meal or before putting my daughter down or before a, uh, or even just uh, putting like those general prayers, how often do I pray? And if you were like me, you struggle with that. It's a discipline. It requires you to constantly go to the Lord because in our own sinfulness, we don't want to depend on the Lord. But if we realize our own inadequacies, our own humble state will constantly go to the Lord in prayer. But the more you, the, the more you choose to follow your own and depend on your own strength, you'll stop praying to the Lord. And, and gradually, you'll overestimate your own abilities and it will lead you into a life of pain and suffering. A lack of prayer is what leads a nation like Israel to fall and it can lead your life into ruins as well. Third, there's, uh, how do they get to this point? There's no desire in knowing more of God's word. Remember, Jephthah was able to use history, theology to argue against the Amorites. He pointed back to the tremendous amount of data, but one thing that he did not do is actually know the totality of God's word. If he knew about the prohibition against God's law when a person makes a vow, he would not have made a vow. Not only that, but he, but, but he, he, he just even just think about the vow he made. He essentially said that he's willing to kill anyone if it means that he gets some victory. Remember, he said anyone that caught, goes through. Then the, in the, I, I said I referenced animals, but in the original, it just talks about strictly human beings. He was willing to kill anyone. And the Bible itself tells you to tell them not to commit murder. And he's still willing to do it. He didn't care. He didn't care about God's word. He wanted to do whatever was right as long as he was able to become king over these people. If you don't have any desire to know God's word, you'll have zero ability to fulfill God's word. Learn God's word more so you can obey it. And learn God's word more so you can guard your heart from sin. Next, how do we get to this point where the nation is so broken, depraved, and even in our own lives? How do we get to this point where we begin testing or bargaining with God? Or begin testing or bargaining with God? You're not offering God anything when you attempt to bargain with God. The only thing that you have that God wants is your love. There's nothing that you can give him. There's nothing in the world that you can offer him. God doesn't want your money. God doesn't want your people. God doesn't want your health. God doesn't want any of that. God just wants your devotion to him and to him alone. So many people believe that they can offer something to God, and God will somehow give them what they want if they, as long as they give something to the Lord. Look, God doesn't care about those things. God wants your full devotion to him. All the material things, all the time things, it means nothing to him. I remember people just say, oh, I will promise I will go to church more if he gives me this. Or I will promise I'll read the Bible more, I'll pray more, I'll fast, I'll, pray. I'll do all of these spiritual disciplines as long as the Lord gives me this. Look, God 
You can't bargain with God. There's nothing you can offer him. So don't bargain with the Lord. Because inevitably, Jephthah, he bargained with the Lord. Israel bargained with the Lord. And they, that just showed over time that his, their love isn't really obedience. They don't really desire to commune and be with God. Bargaining is just getting something for something else. And God doesn't want those things. He wants your love for him. He desires your worship. Next, how do we get to the state? We begin to justify sin with sin, or we sin to justify sin. God is not impressed or honored by sin. Just because a person made a stupid vow doesn't mean God is honored when you choose to fulfill that stupid vow. God is never honored by sin, so don't attempt to justify your sin by keeping those vows. And that's what Jethro was doing. He made, he made one sin. He tried to cover or fulfill that sin with another sin. Sin is when you do things that are contrary to God's word. And God will never tell you to sin. And I think I hear that all the time in our modern day churches where I just remember, I remember counseling someone that could, like, just, he's, like this, this couple committed adultery. And I remember just telling them, like, hey, why, what you've done is wrong. It's sin against the Lord. You need to stop. And their justification with it was like, well, the reason why we're dating is because our parents are racist. And I don't want to, I'm not cool with that. It's like, that has nothing to do with what's going on right now. Your sin has nothing to do with something, with, with this other rebellious thing that you're doing. People try to justify sin all the time. And they try to justify sin with other sins. They think that if they could just do one sin that's seemingly less, that, that's okay for them to do the bigger sin in their life. Don't justify sin by committing more sins. Sin is going to ruin your life if you allow more sin. And that's, again, this is what, if you look at the patterns of Scripture in the Old Testament with people that just constantly compromise, it's always them trying to cover it with sin. But God is gracious. If you confess your sin, he'll wipe all of those sin clean. But it's only because of our own sin that, you know, again, corrupts our objectivity that we choose to continue living in sin. Well, this gets to the next point, which is allowing sin to continue. Allowing sin to continue. We assume that just because the daughter here, and uh, Jethro's daughter, was offered as a vow, that this is somehow not her fault. Again, if you remember, she allowed it to happen as well. She was the one who told her dad to fulfill this vow. She had confronted this perversion with truth, but she was willing to go along with it. And in the church, we must be willing to stop sin at its track. Silence is not an excuse for, for not rebuking sin. We all have a responsibility in the church to weed out sin in our lives and those in the church. This is what Matthew 18 talks about with church discipline. When you see someone in sin, you need to confront it. You know, obviously, you will do it lovingly, but you must take sin seriously. We must not let sin continue to run in our own lives and in the lives of other people in the church. How do we get to the state where there's corruption all over? Is because we allow sin to continue. And lastly, how do we get to a state where we basically look like the world? And again, this is the last point is looking like the world. All of Israel at the time worshipped Yahweh. They claimed to worship Yahweh, but in reality, they, they worshipped other gods in their practice. There was no distinction and difference between Yahweh and the gods of the other nations. Their actions, their rituals, their laws mirrored that of the outside world. Yahweh was no longer treated as holy and unique, but common, which was and is an offense to God. 
And if a person in the church begins to look like the world, don't be surprised if the result of their action are exactly like the world. The way you handle your money, if you, if, you, if you covet how the world uses their money, don't be surprised if you start spending like the world. If you look at the world and see how they handle their relationships, don't be surprised if your relationship in the church is like the world. If you, if you desire the things outside of the church or outside of the confines of scripture, inevitably you will start looking like the world. And this is exactly what's going on in Israel. They looked at the world, they looked at what's going on, instead of submitting to God, instead of obeying God and be blessed by God, they chose to live like the rest of the world. They chose to they adopt the, their, their standards of leadership, they adopt their standards of, of, of practice for war, and even like things like sacrifices. These are all of the things in the world that they tried to take, and eventually it brought them into ruins. So don't stop looking like the world. This is what scripture tells us. We need to be salt and life, light in the world. That means we have to be different. So ask yourself, what are the things in my life that I that look into the world I actually desire secretly? Turn from those sins. Because eventually, if you don't root it out now, eventually it will just grow and it will fester in your life. And eventually, it will comp- you'll, you'll fall into a whole bunch of compromises. So, so those are those uh, application points for ourselves. To conclude... The worst of man can never overshadow the grace of God. I say that because if you look at Hebrews 11, you don't have to turn there, but just keep this in the back of your mind, that Jephthah is actually in Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 is a book that talks about what we call the hall of faith. These are all individuals that ended up going into glory and Jethub is one of those that made the list, verse 32 of chapter 11. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jethub, David and Samuel and the prophets. This person, this person who just sacrificed his daughter, who looked like the world at times, is in this hall of faith. The scripture tells us that this individual one day, if you're a believer today, you'll see him in heaven. How can that be? This one person compromised so much in his life. And he did something so horrendous. How can he be listed as someone that is saved by God? And the reality is that Jephthah, even though he did all these horrible things, he did have one thing going for him, and that is he had faith in the Lord. Even though he made all of these compromises, at some point in his life, he acknowledged that Yahweh indeed is the one true God. There might have been pockets and parts of his life where, uh, where he failed morally, but he had faith. Even someone who had committed so much wrong, at the end of the day, the only thing he had was faith in the Lord. He was saved by his faith and not by his works, because if he was saved by his works, he would not get into heaven. But again, this shows you the grace of our God. Last week, we talked about all these different attributes of God, and you see that God's love and mercy towards wicked sinner is more than we can even fathom. Because if we knew someone like this, this in our life, our first assumption is think this person is going to go to hell. But again, we have to remember God's way is so much beyond us, and it should make us and cause us to worship him. This, again, is not a go and do likewise. It's not saying, oh, okay, now I'm going to start offering, I'm going to sacrifice my daughter and make compromises. No, this just show, it should show you how great our God is that should cause you to worship him more. 
we like to look at Jethro as someone that, that can't be saved. But it, as I listed these seven things earlier, I'm sure all of us have committed a few of these in our lives as well. We're all in need of a savior. Again, last week, we looked at all these attributes that should make us exalt Christ and love him more. And this time, we see how wicked man can be and why we need a savior. Jethro needed a savior, and so do some of you who have not placed your faith in him. His willingness, God's willingness to save us despite how flawed we are, should make us cherish and relinquish every known sin in our life. This shows us, once again, how great our God is. Jethro, even though he made the stupid vow, even though he made all these compromises in his life, had faith. My question for you is, do you have this faith? Let us pray. Lord, we marvel at how great you are and how patient you are. The more we just dive into your word, the more we see how how far short we are. We're so beyond your saving grace. We're so beyond your affection, your love, but yet you still, out of the mercy and love of your heart, set your heart on us. That you loved us undeservingly, where we deserve to be punished for all of our iniquity, for all of our all the moments where we love something more than you, all the times where we wasted all of the money that we used to indulge in our sin, all the way that we use technology in a way that offends other people, offends you instead of edify and build up. All the things you've given us that we've somehow twisted because of our own sinfulness. But Lord, you're so gracious and forgiving us because of your son. Your son was able to take all of our sin to, to, and to bear all the wrath that we deserve. And I pray, Lord, for all of us here that do have this faith, even if it's a immature faith, a young faith, that you make us love you more. Um, we need your grace. Our, our sinful tendency will draw us towards to drift away. But you are a God that's, that's just is always willing to save. You don't desire any of us to perish. And Lord, we know in Scripture that blessing comes from obedience and we want to be blessed by you but the reason why we want to seek obedience is not because of the blessing itself but because we love you um, we want to increase our love for you lord lord for those who do not know you lord humble them um, we, we, we're always a fearful for those that are in the church who think that they know you uh, but have no desire for things of your uh, your word or things of um, things that were pleasing to you lord I pray that this message or any message that they hear cause them to reevaluate, to take sin seriously, to take you seriously, Lord. And Lord, for those who do not know you, may you show them just a constant reminder that every moment that they have is a grace, is a mercy, and that you are giving them time to repent, Lord. Be with us this evening on our discussions as well as just this weekend. And... Um, through the rest of the week, that we live a life that is pleasing to you. Pray these things in your son's name. Amen.